Okay, last, last Sunday was Easter Sunday, if you remember uh, that long ago into the past, and we celebrated the fact that the tomb is empty. Yeah, thank you. That's exactly what I was hoping for. Um, the tomb is empty, and we gloried in the fact that Jesus is alive. Here's my big idea for today. He's still alive right now. It's still true, very much still true. He is very much still risen indeed. So, more than that, what we just heard in this passage in Acts 1 is that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he has now taken up his throne. This is what we read in Ephesians 1. This is where where Matt went to on Easter Sunday. Um, He, that is God, exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above any ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he subjected everything, that's an important word, everything under his feet, and appointed him as head over everything, for the church. Friends, he is still risen. He's still risen indeed. So let us continue to live as if last week happened. The resurrection is very much true, that Jesus is still alive. He is still risen from the dead. He is alive and well right now. And so the big idea today is that last week isn't the end of the story. The resurrection isn't where the, the full stop in the, the story of the world finishes. The resurrection's far from that. And so this week and next week, before we dive into our next book of the Bible, which is going to be Nehemiah, which is very exciting, before we get there, we are going to spend this week and next week fini- finishing the kind of core chapters of the Easter story. Cross, resurrection, ascension, and the next week, the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. And so that's where we're going. I still remember quite distinctly one alpha that we ran one, one year. It wasn't too long ago. I still distinctly remember having this memory of talking about the resurrection of Jesus and we're talking about what faith in him looks like. And this one person said to me, okay, I get it. I think I get like the Easter story. I get the cross. I get the resurrection. So where is he? Where's Jesus? Right? Like he's, he's not still walking around the globe, resurrected. He's not somewhere in the Middle East right now. Where, where is he? Good question. Turns out we skip over a little bit this part of the story. Jesus isn't wandering the world somewhere, resurrected. We were just read in Acts 1. Forty days after the resurrection, he gathered his disciples before ascending to the Father. Forty days. We're now seven days after Easter, so we're doing it a little bit early. There's a traditional Ascension Sunday day, 40 days after Easter Sunday. We're doing it this week. That's okay. But the ascension, t- turns out, the ascension of Jesus, someone actually calls it, uh, I can't remember who came up with this, but they, they kind of pointed out that it's kind of the forgotten act of Christ. We kind of forget to mention it. And this guy in Alpha had to ask, so what happened? <laughs> what happened next? Yeah, we, had to, we actually have to um, point it out. However, despite it being the forgotten act of Jesus, it is actually a very important moment in the story. It's an incredible incredible chapter, and it has incredible implications for our faith, because essentially what, it, what it's doing 
is it's drawing our attention, drawing our gaze to the question, what is Jesus doing now? What is he up to now? As I'm speaking, as you're listening, where is Jesus and what is he up to? If he's not physically in this room with us, speaking. What is Jesus doing right now? And so if you know, if you know our church, if you know us, we are never going to shut up about the cross. We're never going to shut up about the resurrection. We're going to be on about those things forever. And yet, as, as much as we want to highlight and glory in those past acts of Jesus, we don't want to neglect to talk about what he's doing now. Like what, is, what is Jesus doing right now on our behalf? Turns out, he's not finished. He's not tired. And he's not tired of you. He is at work. He is busy. He is alive and well. And he is working on our behalf even now. And so today what we're going to do is I'm going to take you through uh, four implications of the ascension for us and hopefully be reminded of why it is good news that Jesus rose to the Father, ascended to the Father. So firstly, the first thing we learn from the resurrection, from the ascension, I should say, first thing, there is a human body in heaven right now. It's a little bit abstract. I'll show you why that's important. Secondly, there is a reigning king in heaven right now. That's what we just read in Acts, uh, in Ephesians, Ephesians 1. Number three, there is a sending savior in heaven right now. Finally, there is a tireless intercessor in heaven right now as I speak. So firstly, there is a human body in heaven right now. This one, again, it might feel a little bit too abstract to kind of matter, but this is really, really important. Just, just, think, it, just think it through with me, what, what's happening. On Christmas Day, we celebrate that Jesus Christ, the eternal God, the second member of the Trinity, that he incarnated himself, that he took on flesh. To, he, he, he came to be one of us. The, from eternity past, the Son of God existed. Jesus didn't come into existence at, at, at Christmas. The eternal God existed forever, eternity past, as spirit. And then in Christmas, he took on humanity so that he could experience life as one of us. He became enfleshed, which means that he could now hunger and thirst and get tired and kind of be limited in time and space. He could only deal with one sick person at a time, right? He, he could get tired. He could suffer. He could die. All of this because he took on human flesh, so Christmas teaches us that the eternal God, God, God the Son, God the second member of the Trinity, he took on flesh to redeem flesh. He, he entered into suffering to rescue sufferers. He came underneath the curse to rescue those underneath the curse of sin. This is what we learn at Christmas time. But this, this enfleshment, to make up a word, of, of Christ was a one-way thing. For eternity past, he existed as spirit. For eternity future... Jesus Christ exists as a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. When he was raised to life, he wasn't resurrected as a spirit or a phantom. He points out very clearly in multiple places, he has a physical body, a resurrected, glorious body. This is what he says to his disciples in Luke 24. He says, see my hands and my feet and see that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones 
as you see that I have. For eternity past, God the Son had no body. For eternity future, God the Son will have a body, human body, a perfect one. He will be the God-man, Jesus Christ, forever. Which means, as I'm speaking right now, there is currently a physical human body in heaven with God the Father. I couldn't find the quote. I looked for it for a while. But one, one writer says that it'll be human hands that welcome us into heaven. H- human hands. This is significant because of the old persistent heresy within the church uh, called Gnosticism, which essentially says flesh bad, spirit good. And so the goal of all religion is trying to escape the curse of the flesh and go become spirit with God forever, where we can kind of live in this kind of pure environment. Uh, the physical world's cursed, and so we need to escape to be spirit with God. And that kind of thinking, it comes from outside the church, it comes from its Greek thought, but it's an infiltrated Christian thinking through the centuries. And, and the physical, bodily ascension of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus to, to the Father, blows this out of the water because we see quite clearly, right, it's not, it's not God's plan to eliminate flesh, but to redeem flesh became flesh himself. I love the way uh, Tim Chester, uh, who's one of my favorites, and Johnny Woodrow, he said in their book, uh, The Ascension, they say this, the ascension is the story of a body moving to heaven. It is not the escape from the bodily realm, but the entry of humanity in all of our physicalness into heaven. The sphere of God. So far from diminishing the importance of the body, The ascension is the ultimate affirmation of bodily existence. The Son of God himself has a body, not as a historical convenience, but as a permanent presence in heaven. One day, we will find ourselves, 1 Corinthians 15 makes clear for us, we'll find ourselves with perfect physical bodies like our Savior. Perfected. Heaven is not an ethereal spirit-like state on clouds, there will be a physical resurrection. And we will live physical, real, physical lives in heaven, as real as this world is, but without the curse of sin. And listen, when we get there, waiting for us will be a very real, a very non-metaphorical embrace from our Savior. That is worth getting excited about. So the first thing we must remember in the ascension, there's a human body at the right hand of the Father right now. Changes how we think about our our bodies as well. Number two, there's a reigning king in heaven right now. Reigning king. Jesus' ascension to the Father is also his enthronement ceremony. It's the king taking his throne to rule over all things. We saw it in Ephesians 1. This is what Jesus himself says in Matthew 28 to his disciples. It says, now the, the 11 disciples, they, they went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, this is the resurrected Jesus standing before them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. I've always loved that verse. They're standing before the resurrected Jesus, and some are like, yeah, we'll see. Not sure about this. Not sure about this guy. We'll, we'll see what happens. But I love how real the Bible is here about the reality of our doubts. Even those standing before Jesus have had that little niggle in the back of their brain being like, this just can't be true. 
It's just so human of them. It's so true to human nature that the Bible recognizes that there's doubt even standing before a resurrected Jesus. This is what Jesus says. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I don't know about you, but so much in this world feels out of control. I'm not sure exactly what difficulties you're facing in your life right now, but one thing I do know is a lot of it is actually outside of your hands. It's just out of your power control to control. Right? The, the, the unexpected tragedies that flood into our lives, the sinful decisions of others that we have to live with, the housing crisis. <laughs> right? Really, if you think about it, just surrounding us all is this overwhelming evidence that we are not God. It's just everywhere we look, we just see just reminders. We see forces too great for you, circumstances outside of your control. It's all staring you in the face if you'll look at it and take it seriously. You're not God. So much is out of your hands. So much is out of your control. And it can feel like we're storm-tossed boats on top of a sea with no power to end the wind and the waves. And it's into that space where we find ourselves grappling with our humanity, where Jesus gives us this word. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. He can whisper to the, to the storm and it'll shut up. He has authority over it. There is no blade of grass out of place, no star in the sky out of his control. All things bow to him because he is king of kings and lord of lords. All things are his to rule, including you, including me, including the things you care most about, including the trials you're walking through. They're all his. They're all underneath his authority. So friends, the fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, wielding that authority on your behalf, it's wonderful news. It is wonderful, wonderful news. However, we mustn't take his sitting down as a lack of his activity. He's still at work. Not the work of atonement. He says very clear on the cross, it is finished, right? He's not still atoning for the sin of the world. But he is still at work governing, ruling, reigning, working out his will in this world. Again, let me go to Tim Chester and Johnny Woodrow again. They said this. He said, when you went to bed last night, Jesus was at work subduing his enemies. While you slept, he was continuing to rule the world. You know, he doesn't need to sleep. At 2 a.m., he was, he was at work. He was still at it when you woke up this morning. And even now, as you hear this, as I'm speaking, he is still ruling and reigning, working out his will in the world. This is the outrageous claim of the ascension. So I, I genuinely don't, there's so many of us in the room, right? I genuinely don't know what trials you're facing, what difficulties you're working through, what things are making it hard to sleep at night for you, what suffering you're working through, what, what difficulties are outside these doors for you. What I do know, without a doubt, is that your Savior is alive, and he is reigning over all things. He is ruling over all things, and he is not worried about what you are worried about. 
Is that just comforting to remember? Again, right now, as I'm speaking, he's here ruling by his Holy Spirit. He's alive and well, and we have so much reason for hope, even though we can't see it, because of who he is. So take heart. Jesus tells his disciples, take heart. I've overcome the world. What do you have to fear? Your Savior reigns as king in heaven right now. Number three, there is ascending Savior in heaven right now. I am going to do a quick one on this one because this is going to be next week, okay? We're going to talk about the sending of the Spirit next week, but I can't miss, I can't just skim right over it because it's, it's pretty important. That's what Jesus says to his, his followers on the night before he goes to the cross. He says this, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. I have never understood why. Jesus, why can't the helper come while you're here? I don't know if we're actually ever given. I'm just going to put my, like, I don't know. I don't know if there's a good answer to that question. In some mystery, right, of the triune Godhead, Jesus tells us if he's not crucified, if he does not return to his father, the helper will not come. But if he does, if he goes to the cross, if he rises again and he goes to his Father, he will send the Helper. He will send the Spirit to us. And in one, one of the most mind-bending moments of the entire Bible, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, listen, it is to your advantage that I go. This is going to be better for you that I am not here with you, but that you have the Holy Spirit with you instead. In other words, Jesus is saying it is better for you to have the Spirit inside of you than it is to have Jesus himself next to you. I barely believe that. But Jesus seems pretty convinced of it. That's an incredible thing to say, isn't it? I don't know about, the idea, about you, but the idea of like having Jesus on this stage instead of me, <laughs> and I'll be down here and we can all listen to what Jesus has. That's electric, isn't it? I'll come to church. <laughs> I wouldn't miss a Sunday if it was Jesus, right? But Jesus says, no, 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 as good as that is, it is better for you that I go to the cross, I go to the Father, and I send the Holy Spirit to you. It's better. It's better to have the Holy Spirit within us than Jesus among us. I don't know. Friends, the presence of the Holy Spirit is just that good. It's just that good. We'll come back to that next week. He is going to send us the Spirit when he ascends to the Father. Next week, we'll talk about that at more length. Finally, it's the one where I want to sit in for a bit. There's a human body in, in heaven right now, a reigning king in heaven, there's a sending savior. Friends, there is a tireless intercessor in heaven right now. This is what we read in Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 says this, the former priests, he's talking about the Old Covenant, the Old Testament priests, the Mosaic priests, uh, Levitical priests, I should say, the former priests were many in number. There was tons of them. Because... They were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The Bible is saying, do you know one problem, like one like, obvious flaw with the whole Old Testament system? Priests would keep dying. We had to keep getting new priests. Whether it was old age or like a tragic chariot cart accident or uh, however else you die in the, in the, in the Old Testament. Um, lions. 
whatever the problem, they just would keep dying. And so we kept needing to get new priests to kind of do the role of atoning for, for the sin and, and, and interceding for us. Do you know the cool thing about Jesus? He never dies. He's going to be a priest forever. He continues to live forever. So he can be our permanent priest because he lives forever. Consequently, he says in, in verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Those who draw near to God through, through Jesus, he can save them since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives. He always lives so he can keep going. He can keep ministering on our behalf because he lives forever. He can continue to make intercession on our behalf. What is it that Jesus lives to do? He lives to intercede for his children, for his followers, his, his brothers and sisters, I should say. So even, even right now, again, as I'm speaking, right now, Jesus is interceding on our behalf to the Father. On our behalf, right? God the Son laboring on our behalf to God the Father. I think what makes this idea even more interesting or more amazing even is that the one to whom he is interceding to is our very own Father. Our Father loves us. Jesus is not twisting the arm of the Father to try and take it easy on us, is he? Our Father loves us. His heart is spring-loaded with grace and love and mercy and blessing to his children. He is ready to go. He, Jesus isn't twisting the arm of the Father. Jesus is calling on the Father to do the very thing that the Father wants to do. Pour out grace on his children. Forgive their sin on the basis of their faith in Christ. Receive them in, on the basis of what Jesus has done. It's not a hard task Jesus has, but he's doing it all the same. He's working, he's working, he's laboring, he's interceding. He's saying, Lord, see their sin. I have died for it. They're mine. They're mine. Dane Ortland, in his fantastic book, Gentle and Lonely, I forgot to bring it, it's in my bag upstairs. Um, Gentle and Lonely, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, one of my favorite books ever written, go buy it. Uh, he describes why Jesus intercedes for us when we've already been saved by the cross. Like, isn't the atonement rescue us? Why does Jesus have to... This is what he says. He says, why would Jesus need to intercede for us? After all, haven't we been completely justified already? What is there for Christ to plead on our behalf? Hasn't he already done all that was needed to acquit us? In other words, does the doctrine of Christ's heavenly intercession mean that something was left incomplete in the work of the cross? If we speak of the finished work of Christ on the cross, cross, does the doctrine of intercession suggest that the cross was actually left unfinished? The answer is that intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. Christ's present heavenly intercession on our behalf is a reflection of the fullness and victory and completeness of his earthly work. Not a reflection of anything lacking. The atonement accomplishes our salvation. The intercession is the moment-by-moment -moment application of that atoning work. Isn't that good? It's the moment-by-moment -moment application to our lives, to our hearts, to our standing before the Father. So friends, Christ has died for you. But more than that, 
Jesus labors, labors for your good before the Father, even as we speak. Let that put courage into your heart. Let that put steel into your spine and a kind of happy defiance into the way you face life's difficulties. He died for you, and he is still working for you. Your savior is for you. I love the way the, uh, the Scottish Presbyterian pastor, Robert Murray McShane, said it. He said, if we could hear, if we could hear Christ praying for us in the other room, I would not fear a million enemies. <laughs> Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. If we could just hear it, if we could hear him praying in the next room for us, what do you think would change if you could physically hear his words through the wall? What difference would that make? How would you... How would you walk out of this room differently if you could literally make out his voice through the walls on your behalf? Friends, if you could only hear, if you could only hear the way he prays, if you could only hear the tenderness in which he speaks to your father, if you could only hear the earnestness with which he pleads, if he only you could hear what, what wonder would fill your heart. Friends, if you could only see the smile of the Father. The smile of the Father as he receives the prayers of his Son on your behalf. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near, since he always lives to make intercession. He always lives to make intercession. He's not tired. He's tireless. He's not tired of you. He's still working on your behalf. He always lives to make intercession. This is why Paul says this in Romans 8. I just can't go past it in Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was also raised. He is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who could separate us from the love of Christ? He died. He's now interceding for us. I think some of us need to repent. <laughs> need to repent of our small, small-minded views of our God those cold-hearted images of God your father, the kind of like, the classic kind of emotionally distant father who tolerates his kids and kind of project that onto, a, onto our heavenly father. We need to repent of that. We need to repent of that because it's not so. His love is the overwhelming force in this universe. It is the, nucle the nuclear strong force that holds together the atoms in the, in the universe. It is the... <laughs> It's the one thing that matters. It's the strongest thing there is. And so those, those default images we have of, as God is being perpetually disappointed, God being perpetually angry, barely tolerating us, sick of our stuff-ups, ready to kick you to the curb, these things, right, they, they greatly dishonor who he is because he is not like that. His heart is not like that. 
and if he could only see. So I think we need to repent and receive him for all he is. Just before we finish, let me just wrap up with this one particular verse that I think takes us to the heart of why this matters. The one place where we need to have this applied to our, our lives. Um, this is 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, and John takes us into that place where we need to hear why this is so significant for us. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This verse holds together two truths. Firstly, it points out Christian maturity will mean growing in our ability to say no to sin. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Your personal holiness matters before the Father. It really does. But, listen, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. When you stumble, when you stumble, in those moments, in those moments where you stumble, you have an advocate before the Father who pleads the blood of Christ on your behalf. Before I pray, I'm just going to just read an extended passage uh, from Gentle and Lowly, from Dane Ortland. I'm just going to ask, why don't you close your eyes while I read this, and then I'll pray. I invite you to just close your eyes and listen as we, as we think about our advocate, Jesus Christ. He says, consider your own life. How do you think about Jesus' attitude towards that dark pocket in your life that only you know? The overdependence upon alcohol? The lost temper time and time again? The shady business about your finances? The inveterate people-pleasing that looks, that looks to others like niceness? but which you know to be the fear of man. The entrenched resentment that bursts out in behind-the-back behind accusations. The habitual use of pornography. Who is Jesus in those moments of spiritual blankness? Not who is he once you conquer that sin, but who is he in the midst of it? The Apostle John says, he stands up and defies all accusers. Jesus is our comforting defender, the one nearer than we know. And his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin, not after we get over it. In that sense, his advocacy is itself our conquering of it. We are indeed called to forsake our sins, and no healthy Christian would suggest otherwise. When we choose to sin, we forsake our true identity as a child of God. We invite misery into our lives, and we displease our Heavenly Father. We are called to mature into deeper levels of personal holiness as we walk before the Lord, truer consecration, new vistas of obedience. But when we don't, when we choose to sin, though we forsake our true identity, our Savior does not forsake us.
These are the very moments where his heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusations, astonishes the angels, and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of all our messiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ. It pays the price for our sin, rescues us from our depravity and our senseless wanderings. Lord, we thank you for the resurrection as well. The life we now share in your name. And today, we thank you for the ascension, your ascension to the Father. Lord, we need to hear that you're alive and well still. I pray that this would come to life to us, Lord, as we, as we meditate on what it means that you rule and reign over every single thing. Lord, would we, would we know of your intercession for us? Would we in our hearts hear your words on our behalf? Would we in our hearts hear the earnestness with which you speak and the love with which you speak. Well, there's many places in our lives where we hold back from you, where we feel a, a sense of shame and failure and disappointment over our lives, Lord. And it's those places we need to hear your intercession, your advocacy for us. Would you apply the atonement of the cross to every dark corner of our lives, every dark corner of our hearts? And Holy Spirit, lead us into paths of righteousness. Lead us into new obedience. Fill us with the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus, we thank you for your work. We praise you today. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your work. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.